Hey, good morning, Harvest. Grab your Bibles and get uh, the book of John, John 6, in front of you. If you need a Bible, there's ushers coming down the rows. Just raise your hand. We are going to be in John 6 today. I'm going to be bouncing around throughout the chapter, and it's a long chapter. It's 71 verses. And for that reason, I would love for you to have God's Word in front of you. Um, I preached last night. And after preaching here, I left the church. I went back home. We were hosting small group last night. Small group left, 9.15, 9.30. And uh, I flipped on the TV. I was watching uh, the end of a Bulls game, and I was just kind of searching and looking around social media. And I was introduced to a young man by the name of James Reamer. This isn't a name that I knew before, but he was front page lead story on all my news sources ESPN, Sports Illustrated, The Athletic, The Bleacher Report, all the important ones. He also happened to be covered by CNN, The New York Times, uh, Fox News last night. It's interesting. He's he's an NHL goalie. He plays for the San Jose Sharks. He has never been an all-star. He has been in the league, the NHL, for 13 years. He has played for four teams. But he found himself embroiled in controversy yesterday. Uh, reporters in his face. See, the issue was his team, the San Jose Sharks, had decided that they were going to do a promotion. They were going to do a gay pride night, and he found himself at a crossroads. How would he respond? He issued this statement, and I quote, he said, for all 13 years of my NHL career, I've been a Christian, not just in title, but how I choose to live my life daily. I have a personal faith in Jesus Christ who died on the cross for my sins, And in response, asks me to love everyone and follow him. He went on and said, I have no hate in my heart for anyone, and I've always strived to treat everyone that I encounter with respect and kindness. However, in this specific instance, I am choosing not to endorse something that is counter to my personal convictions, which are based on the Bible, the highest authority in my life. Now, not being an all-star, being a journeyman player, he's a free agent at the end of the season, and one of the reporters asked him, how do you think this will impact your upcoming free agency? And Reamer responded this way. He said, I'd be lying if I said that wasn't something that had crossed my mind. He said, I'm sure there's people in management or ownership that won't look favorably on this, my, my stance. So, so he understands that when he takes this stance, this is going to have financial repercussions. He could find himself unemployed at the end of this season. I don't think he joined the NHL to find himself on this stage at this moment. Would you agree? It's interesting, last week, I don't think Sheena and Austin Beam, they they live in Eugene, Oregon, were looking to find themselves in the middle of a firestorm. But when their high school student came home with an assignment from his teacher, they were to write a paper requiring students to write about their sexual fantasies. They felt impelled to speak up. And I'm quite confident that not everyone was happy with them when that teacher, the, the local football coach, was suspended. I remember um, when we were starting this church, I was also involved. I had taken over an organization, a relief organization, a non-for-profit called International Aid. And as I stepped into my role as CEO of International Aid, trying to figure out how to run a non-for-profit, in the first couple weeks, I received an invitation. And they were inviting me to be a guest speaker at a uh, relief organization in Detroit, the relief organization that was inviting me to speak was the largest Islamic relief organization in America. 
And I was like, that is just so weird. So I walked into the staff meeting at International Aid. I was new. They didn't know me very well. And I'm like, why in the world would I get an invitation to speak at an Islamic relief event? And they said, well, because they're one of our biggest partners. And I'm like, as a Christian relief organization, why are we partnering with an Islamic relief organization? And the response in the room, they were like startled. They're like, so you don't think... Islamic people suffer, just like Christians. We're called to help everybody. And I remember in that meeting, I was like, listen, there's enough suffering worldwide, and we're given a thimbleful of resources in which to respond to suffering. We're going to use that thimbleful that God has entrusted to us to steward, to partner with organizations that promote the gospel, not Islam. It's just what we're going to do. Uh, staff not overly thrilled with that decision by me early in my involvement there. I wasn't looking for a fight. I wasn't looking to cause conflict. You just find yourself there. I think it was Monday or Tuesday night this week. Cal was in Israel. Cal and Mary were in Israel. We were watching um, their two sons, Bo and Judah. And I told Bo, hey, listen, go take a shower. Go change into your pajamas, brush your teeth, come back out and I'll put you to bed. So he goes off to do that. I'm flipping stations and I found this old movie that I really, really love. It's The Untouchables. Any of you heard it? Or any of you watched it? Old Kevin Costner, Andy Garcia, and there's this wonderful scene at the end of the movie. I turned to the movie right when this scene started. They're in Union Station in Chicago. They're um, treasury officials. They're the, they're the good guys. They're trying to capture Al Capone's bookkeeper and there's this encounter in the train station where all of a sudden the bookkeeper comes in. He's surrounded by mobsters. Kevin Costner's there, but he's conflicted. There's another lady. She's got a stroller. The baby starts to go down the stairs. He pulls a shotgun from under his trench coat. He starts blasting the bad guys. They're firing back. Andy Garcia comes sliding in across the floor. It is awesome. And, and, and they've got the bookkeeper. He's trapped on the stairs. There's a mobster that's holding a gun to the bookkeeper's head. He goes, if you try to kill me, I'm going to kill him. And the bookkeeper's going, give me, I'll give you whatever you want. I'll give you whatever you want. Just, just get me out of here. And uh, Kevin Costner looks at Andy Garcia. He's like, you got the shot? And he's like, yeah, I got the shot. He's pointing his gun. He's like, take it. And he shoots the bad guy. And blood runs out of the mobster's mouth. And there's a big red spot on the wall right behind his head. And... Um, and then I hear this little voice from Bo behind me, and he's like, uh, Bumpa, I don't think you should be watching this. And um, sometimes you make a stand, like sometimes you got to stand up to your Bumpa and his choice of entertainment. You, he didn't see that coming when he went to brush his teeth, but it kind of comes at you sometimes in life, doesn't it? Well, well, what happens in John 6, and the reason that I want to dive into this chapter, is, is Jesus is dealing with a crowd that has some expectations, some desires. They, they want to make Jesus king. They are following him. They want him to step up and be a ruler that is going to overthrow Rome. And Jesus has to say some hard things. The, the crowd isn't going to like this. This is the very same verses that we looked at last week. If you were here last week, do you remember? We went through John 6 and we were looking at the crowd and we were saying why people leave and why people stay. Please, somebody tell me you remember that. Do you remember that? Okay, this week, same passage, same verses, but we're going to take our attention. We're not going to be looking at the crowd. I want us to be looking at... What Jesus says, what Jesus' responses are in chapter 6. Jesus is going to help us understand how to deal with discouragement. 
Anyone in this room ever been discouraged? Like you, you watch the news, you, uh, you pick Purdue to win your bracket. I mean, there, there's a lot of stuff going on out there that, that's kind of, I did that, that's discouraging. But please understand, I'm not talking general discouragement. When, when, when we're looking at what Jesus does in John 6, there is a particular discouragement that I'm trying to address this morning. And that discouragement is this, when we choose to follow Jesus Christ... When, when we are trying to follow him, when we are trying to be obedient, when we are trying to be a witness, when we are trying to have a testimony, that invariably leads to some conflicts that maybe we weren't looking for and didn't want. It leads to some rejection, and that rejection hurts. And what you see, all of this Jesus is experiencing in John 6. By the time he gets to the end of the chapter, so many people have left that he looks at the 12, he goes, are you guys going to leave too? You can sense the discouragement and the disappointment. It's interesting. Jesus says in Matthew 10, 16, he says, Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. He says 18 verses later, just down in Matthew 10, 34, Don't think that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I've not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I've come to set man against father and daughter against his mother and a daughter-in-law against his mother-in-law and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. What Jesus is saying there is he says, following me is not always going to be easy. He's going to go on in Matthew 10. He's going to say, if you want to follow me, take up your cross and follow me. And, and some of the conflict and some of the disappointments and some of the betrayal and some of the hurt and the discouragement, it's going to come from those that are closest to you. Here he's referencing your own family. Hey, parents, if you've made the decision that for, for you and your house, you're going to follow the Lord, hey, guess what? Your kids aren't always going to be on the same page. You realize that, right? And, and, and your high schoolers are not always going to be thrilled with the decisions that you make for your family. And as you choose to follow the Lord in your family, quite honestly, sometimes that can be upsetting up a generation. Your parents are looking back and saying, so what are you saying? We didn't raise you well enough? Like, you didn't like the way our house operated? Now you're putting on these airs, this, this holiness? Like, like, sometimes our walk creates conflict, which can lead to discouragement. And today, I'm just going to try to be very, very practical. We're going to look in the text, John 6 how to deal with discouragement by looking at how Jesus responded to discouragement. Here's the first thing that we see. I don't want you to miss this. First thing that we see Jesus do is pray. No, I, I just got to tell you, there's no more Sunday school answer than that. Could we agree? But after feeding the 5,000, I don't want you to miss what happens next. They want to make him king. Uh, they adore him. And what we read in John 6, 15, it says, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. See it there in the text. I'm, just, I'm grabbing this from John 16, looking how Jesus responds. The first thing that we see him do is pray. In Mark 6, 46, Mark 6, I'm going to go there two or three times. That's a parallel passage talking about the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus walking on water, and then what happens next. In John 6, 46, it says, and after he had taken leave of them, the 5,000, he went up on the mountain to pray. Now, I don't want you to think that Jesus just went up on the mountain to get alone to escape the crowds. No, he was going to the mountain. He took leave of them. The purpose behind it was so that he could pray. We see Jesus do this throughout the New Testament. Sometimes he goes into the wilderness alone. Sometimes he takes his disciples. Sometimes he takes just a few of his disciples. But Jesus is getting alone. He is withdrawing 
for a season to pray. When does he do this? Why does he do this? Well, I want to get very specific. We're going to look at several examples in the New Testament of why and when Jesus withdraws to pray. Here's one that I see when demands on Jesus are heavy, when demands are heavy. In Mark 1, verse 32, we read this, that uh, it says that evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons. And the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place. And there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him. And they found him and said to him, everyone's looking for you. So, so Jesus, after nightfall, it says, at the door where he is staying, the entire city has gathered. They're bringing all that are sick, all that are demon-possessed. He is um, pressed in by ministry, by demands. I don't know how late that went into the evening, but here's what we know. Early the next day, before the sun even rose, Jesus is gone. He's out at a desolate place. And, and if that was a Tuesday night when he was surrounded by the whole city at his door, I promise you, Wednesday at daylight, they're coming back, right? And they're all searching for him. And where is Jesus? And hey, ministry has its demands. And, and Jesus withdraws. Anyone here ever feel like the demands are just too much? That inflation's a thing, isn't it? Making ends meet, prices up, food prices crazy. Just being stretched. Any parents in the room? Like, like we've been watching just two kids for two weeks while they were in Israel. Friday, they went home. Second joy, man. First joy, grandparents come. Second joy, you send them back. And, and, and after just two weeks, it's like, I'm going to so many soccer games and baseball games and running around and kids are so busy and you're stretched so thin. Do you, do you ever feel like the demands are too much? Jesus, in the face of that, he withdraws, he prays. Here's something else that I see. When expectations are inflated... Again, John 6, 15, right back into our text, into John 6, perceiving that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. He went to pray. In a little while, in just a few chapters, Jesus will enter Jerusalem. Once again, a crowd will gather. They'll gather there with palm branches. We'll celebrate this in a couple weeks. And as they gather, as Jesus enters Jerusalem, they will cry out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. That's how the last week of Jesus' life begins. Do you remember what happens on three, four days later on the cross? Jesus being put to death, same crowd, crucify him, crucify him. See, see, the crowd believed that Messiah would come and the role of Messiah was to free them from oppression and basically be a victor over Rome. That was their expectation. Jesus came to be a victor, but it wasn't over Rome, it was over death. I think that's a way bigger victory, don't you? But, but it didn't match the crowd's expectation. Frustrations born out of unmet expectation. When Jesus realized that he couldn't live up to the expectations... He withdraws. He prays. When Jesus was faced with big decisions, in Luke 6, 12, we read, in those days, Jesus went up to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. 
And when day came, he called his disciples. So as Jesus was calling his disciples for the first time, before he does that, he spends all night in prayer. This choosing of the 12, that's going to be a big decision. Jesus is going to live with these men for the next three years. Before he makes that decision, he's up in the mountain. He goes by himself and prays all night, continually. Lord, give me the strength to deal with Peter every day. Says some great things, but he says some goofy things too. Before he had to make decisions, Jesus would withdraw to pray. When difficulty looms, in Luke 9, 18... It says, now it happened when Jesus was praying alone, the disciples, uh, uh, the disciples were with him. Then they said to them, who do you say that I am? And Peter said, the Christ of God. Verse 21, he strictly charged them and commanded them to tell no one this, saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. See, Jesus is praying. He asks the disciples who I am. Peter gives this great, you're the Christ. And he says, listen, there's days coming when I'm going to suffer. Jesus had already set his gaze towards Jerusalem. He knew how his mission ended. When difficulty loomed, Jesus prayed. When modeling dependence, we read at the end of Matthew 10, or Luke 9, Jesus is meeting with two sisters, Mary and Martha. Jesus is in their home. It says, Martha was distracted. She was doing a lot of serving. She went to Jesus and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve you alone? Tell her to help me. And Jesus answers her. He says, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but the one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. Now, Jesus was praying in a certain place. It goes right into chapter 11 of Luke. And it says, when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray. And Jesus will model prayer. He'll say, give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Jesus is praying a prayer of dependence. He is applauding Mary, rebuking Martha, because Mary is the one that is sitting at his feet dependent. When Jesus is modeling dependence, he withdraws and he prays. And please hear me. Jesus isn't just modeling dependence. He is dependent. And he wants his followers to live the same lifestyle, to be dependent on God. So when Jesus was dependent, and just one more. Mark 14, verse 32. It says, and they went away to a place called Gethsemane. And Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter, James, and John and began, get this, to be greatly distressed and troubled and he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. So when Jesus was, just right from the text, distressed or troubled or sorrowful, sorrowful what did he do? He prayed. So question here, does anybody here qualify as somebody who needs to seek God in prayer? Any, anybody facing heavy demands, inflated expectations, big decisions, difficult days? Listen, if we want to battle against discouragement, if we want to stay encouraged and not be discouraged by the things that we face, follow Jesus' examples. We have a God who understands. We have a God who felt the same pressures. And when he felt the way that we sometimes do, he prayed. Here's the second thing, if you're keeping notes. We see Jesus in chapter 6. Constantly, he remembers his identity. Let me just show you a few of the verses from John 6, our text, where we see Jesus verbally declare his identity. He says in verse 27, 
For on him, speaking of himself, God the Father has set his seal. Verse 35, I am the bread of life. Verse 48, I am the bread of life. Verse 51, I am the living bread. Verse 38, I, have, I am the one who has come down from heaven. Verse 40, everyone who looks on the Son, speaking of himself, the Son of God. In verses 53 and 62 of John 6, I am the Son of Man. I am the Son of Man. In verse 57, as the living Father, my Father has sent me. Jesus, over and over again throughout this passage, he's reflecting and remembering and verbalizing who he is, what his identity is. And some of you are like, well, that's easy for him. He's the son of God. Where does that leave me? Well, really good news, because if you put your faith in Jesus Christ, we have a similar identity. Are you aware of that? It's interesting. Paul, in Ephesians 1, verses 3 through 14, there's about 11 verses there. He gets so excited to explain what our identity is in Christ that he uses the longest run-on sentence in the entire Bible, maybe in all of history. Here is who you are in Christ. And in Ephesians 1, he says this, you have been chosen, you have been adopted, you have been redeemed, you have been forgiven. Just like Christ said that he is sealed, he goes, you've been sealed with the Holy Spirit. In, in Romans, he'll tell, he'll write to the Romans, Paul will, that we are joint heirs with Christ. That is our identity. If you've Ask Jesus to forgive your sin. Do you understand that you've been adopted into the family of God, that you've been redeemed, that you've been forgiven? That's reality. It doesn't change. That is what is true. That is what is real. And it doesn't matter what the crowd thinks of you. Are you aware of that? Jesus, he doesn't lose sight of his identity. The big idea, if you're keeping notes, I don't have this on the screen. I'll just give it to you. The big idea is this. Strangers are not supposed to feel at home. If you've traveled overseas and you're in a foreign country, very seldom do you feel like you're at home. Jesus understands his identity. He's not from this world. He's sent from heaven. You understand that throughout the New Testament, we're called these words like strangers, foreigners, sojourners, aliens. Listen, there's going to be times in this life, in this world, we don't feel at home. That's okay. Strangers are not supposed to feel at home. Don't lose sight of your identity. Here's the third thing. Don't compromise. Again, back to John 6. Look at what Jesus says in verse 626. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Now, a little background to that statement the crowd that wanted to make him king after he fed the 5,000 is looking for him on the other side of the sea. When they realize he isn't there, they jump into boats. They travel across the sea. They look for Jesus, find Jesus. Now I would expect after taking that much time, Jesus would be at least appreciative to see you, if not thankful. Wouldn't you agree? But that's not what Jesus does. When, when the crowd gets there, they're like, how did you get here? Where were you? He's like, you don't want to see me. You want free lunch like yesterday. That's the only reason. He just cuts right to the issue. And there's something in me that I really, really love that response. He's just like, hey, I'm going to tell it exactly like it is. He speaks truth. We have a world that is very, very slow to embrace truth. 
grace and truth, you need to balance those things, but sometimes you just need to say things the way that they are. It's interesting. If I had been in the crowd and Jesus was like, so you just want a free lunch again? I would have been like, oh, good to see you too, Jesus. Like, put a little effort into getting here. But Jesus goes right to the heart issue. And then later in the chapter, when he sees the crowd begin to grumble, when he sees them begin to dispute among themselves, does he dial down the message? Is that what he does? Does he make it more acceptable? Well, well, read verse 53 of John 6. Look at that. Find that in the text. Jesus, who has been throughout this uh, chapter, in chapter 6, he's presenting himself as the bread of life. I am the thing that will ultimately satisfy. Not the things that I can give you, it's me. I am the bread. I am the one that came down from heaven. They're struggling with this, so he doubles down. Verse 53, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks on my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him on the last day. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on, the, on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me. Do you feel like he's just lightening up there? Just like dialed it down, downshifted a gear, didn't make his message so offensive? Or do you feel like he's continuing to drive the point? Force the people to a decision. Will they recognize what really satisfies in the face of conflict, in the face of rejection, there's no softening of the message. In verse 60, the people are like, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? Verse 66, many of the disciples turned back. They no longer walked with him. And I would just say this, with what we're facing culturally, sometimes we need to be reminded that the truth is not something that we can back down on and it's not something that can be compromised. Would you agree? So many believers are conflicted. This week, the Alliance Defending Freedom, they issued the results of a survey that they ran. The headline of it read, three in five U.S. workers fear sharing religious views in the workplace. Three in five. And I'm thinking of that in light of a goalie for the San Jose Sharks. So many churches compromising the gospel. I, I, I sometimes still marvel at where we meet as a church. If you knew the history of this room, if you knew the history of the church that preceded us going from First Reformed of Spring Lake to Christ Community Church to C3, to being a Bible-proclaiming church, to being an anything-but-Bible-proclaiming church. When we walked through this building before we acquired it, there were rooms devoted to all other gods. There were acupuncture rooms. There were things going on in this building that make, made the place feel creepy. The only one that wasn't welcome was a Christian. This was a place that was trying to embrace everything, make everybody feel welcome. And they didn't like Christianity because of its exclusive claims. See, see the problem is when you embrace everything, you stand for nothing. In, in the musical Hamilton, it's telling the historical story of Alexander Hamilton, one of our early uh, leaders in our country, and his nemesis is a guy by the name of Aaron Burr. Hamilton is very um, opinionated, very convicted. Aaron Burr just watches the political tides as they go back and forth, and he tries to figure out where the people are, and then he follows their lead. And there comes this point, this one line in the musical where Hamilton looks at Aaron Burr and he says, if you stand for nothing, Burr, what will you fall for? There's some real truth to that.
Here's a fourth thing. Not only do I see Jesus not compromise the message, I see him lean into God's sovereignty. Again, pull your Bibles, look at John 6. I want you to see these right in the text. It says in verse 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. John 6, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. That word draws, you could translate it drag. It's translated that way other places in the New Testament. Whoever comes to, whoever comes to me only comes to me unless because the Father draws him. Verse 65, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father. Jesus is, the crowd becomes more disgruntled, begins to grumble more. He understands God's sovereignty. His mission is to proclaim truth irregardless of how the crowd responds. What a, what a wonderful place to be. Do you guys ever just wake up and you're like, this world is bonkers. Do you ever feel that way? Like, like just this week in the news. There's this report that uh, Russia shot down one of our drones and the initial response, we didn't shoot down your drones. And then we show video from our drone of running into a Russian jet. Did you guys see that? I'm thinking they took down our drone. This week, Poland and Slovakia, another country. Poland, they're, they're sending jets to the Ukraine. This is a new move on behalf of any of the supporters of Ukraine, they're not just providing them with tanks, but now we're actually using jets. We're sending them over. We're training their fighters. Do you guys feel like this Ukraine thing's dying down? We got inflation's the thing. Banks are failing. Nobody knows what to do with interest rates. There's protests in France. A headline this week, Paris is burning. Protesters set the city ablaze. Beyond all that, if you've been watching the news down in Florida, there's a 5,000-mile long swath of seaweed, twice the width of our country, heading for the shore of, this is horror stuff. It, it, it's bonkers. And as Christians, we can become very, very anxious of the things that we see in the news. But can I, can I tell you something? God's on the throne. He's in control. We don't have to worry about that. We can trust in God's sovereignty. What that means for me as a pastor, I've been given a job to do. I'm to preach the word. That's what I'm told to do. Doesn't matter who comes, if many come, if a few come, it doesn't matter. Just preach the word. Leave the rest up to me. I'm going to work in the hearts of people. That's not your job. I'll do that. You can take rest in that. You can take comfort in that. Your job, be obedient. Love the Lord. Worship him. Nothing that's going on in our world surprises the Lord. I'm going to put a verse from 2 Timothy 3 up on the screen. It's interesting. Peter is describing what's going to happen in the last days before the return of Christ. I'm not going to go through it, but let me just point out what the verse says. Think about this. 2,000 years ago, Peter wrote this describing what the events would be like before the return of Christ. Here's what he says. They're going to mock Christians. Culture will mock Christians. They'll deny that there is a creator God. They will embrace evolution. It says things continue from the beginning as they always were. That's uniformitarianism. It's a tenet of evolution. He was teaching against evolution before evolution was a theory. Peter writes that, they will deny the flood. They will reject a God who judges. They will laugh at the idea that Jesus is coming again. John 6, the words of Jesus, ooze 
with Jesus taking comfort in his understanding of sovereignty. And I think he understood it really well because remember, he was the one sent down from heaven. He'd been in the throne room of God. He has seen God's reign. He has seen his rule. God is on the throne. The battle belongs to the Lord. Here's a fifth thing. Stay on mission. Again, I'm going to the parallel passage to um, John 6. In Mark 6, it says this. When the, the crowd, when they'd crossed over, when Jesus and the disciples, they had crossed over, they came to land at Gerasenet and they moored to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds and whoever, uh, uh, to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he came, villages, cities, countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplace and implored him that, he might touch, that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. So John in John 6, John records the crowd that traveled from the feeding of the 5,000 to follow Jesus. Mark records another crowd that as soon as he landed, there was a whole other people. They ran through the region. There was nowhere that Jesus could go. He couldn't go into the villages. He couldn't go into the countryside. Wherever they were, wherever Jesus was, him and the disciples, the crowds found him. There's more people to be healed. There's more people to have demons cast out. On and on and on the demands went. And Jesus traveled throughout Galilee, healing, proclaiming the good news of the gospel. Please hear me when we're fighting discouragement, disappointment, we feel the sting of betrayal, don't withdraw. There's something in us that when we feel that pain, we want to slide back into our cocoon. We want to cuddle with our hurt and withdraw from the mission. Jesus stays on mission. In Genesis 4, verse 6, Cain, his offering has been refused by God. He is angry and he is depressed. Genesis 4, 6, the Lord says to Cain, why are you angry and why are you depressed? Why is your countenance fallen? Listen to what he says. If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you, but you must master it. Don't quit doing the right thing. Keep doing. Don't withdraw. If you're suffering from discouragement today, if you're suffering from betrayal, what are the things that God has called you to do as a parent, as an employee, as a, as a son? As a, as, what are your roles? What is the position that he's putting you in? Continue to do the obedient things that he asks you to do and see if that won't lift your countenance. Jesus, he stays on mission. Here's a sixth thing. He confides in godly friends. At the end of the chapter, we looked at this last week under the idea of why do people stay. You can sense Jesus' frustration or discouragement. He says in John 6, verse 67, he says, Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? And then Simon Peter gives this great answer. He goes, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the keys to eternal life, and we have come to believe and have come to know that you are the Holy One from God. In, in a post-COVID world, We've gotten very, very comfortable just living in the cocoon of our homes. We date online. When I say we, I don't mean me. I've been married 40 years. I don't even get it. Um, we have Facebook friends. We become isolated. We become withdrawn. It's not helping 
our national psyche. You're aware of that, right? How important is it to have godly friends to gather as a church? This is why we stress small groups, that you have people in your life that know you, that you can be transparent with, that you know that when push comes to shove, they're not going to tell you what you want to hear. They're going to tell you what you need to hear. We need friends like that, right? Throughout Jesus' ministry, it's funny, he's always confronting the disciples. He's discipling them. And very direct. But this is one of those occasions in John 6 where you can sense that Jesus is discouraged and up steps Peter. Man, where else would we go but you? You're the one that has the keys to eternal life. You see what he's doing? He's encouraging, right? He's speaking truth. He's saying what is real. He's saying, we believe and we've come to know that you're the Holy One from God. This is one of those rare instances where we actually see the disciples encouraging Jesus, the discipler. So, how to deal with discouragement? We need to become people of prayer. We need to remember our identity. We can't compromise. We need to lean into God's sovereignty. We need to stay on mission. We, we need to be able to confide in godly friends. Here's the seventh point. Repeat. Couldn't figure out how to end this chapter. Quite honestly, I wanted to end on that last point six. I thought it was just a wonderful ending. I think that's where chapter six should have ended, but it doesn't. So, so Peter makes this declarative statement. We've come to believe and to know that you're the holy one sent from God. He's so encouraging to Jesus. Look at Jesus' response in verse 70. Jesus answered them and he said, did I not choose you, the 12, and yet one of you is the devil? That just seems like a weird response to Peter's encouragement. He said, he spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the 12, was going to betray him. I think what Jesus is saying is he's saying, listen, on my journey, on the mission that God has sent me, John 6, this crowd, this won't be the only time that I feel the sting of disappointment, that I become discouraged, that I am betrayed, that I am rejected, that, that, that people change course that they don't follow. This isn't going to be the only time. If I'm going to stay on mission, if I'm going to do the things that God has called me to do, I'm going to feel this sting again, and it actually might get a whole lot worse. But I'm going to pray and I'm going to speak truth. And I'm going to stay on Michigan or on mission and I'm going to lean into God's sovereignty. These are the things that I'm going to do because when I get discouraged, I need to remind myself of the things that are real so that I can endure to the end. Jesus gives us something pretty good to model in John 6, doesn't he? How to deal with discouragement. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. Thank you for people that are willing to open your word to listen. I thank you for the testimony of those who say, listen, I don't just call myself a Christian. I live like a Christian, that the Bible is my authority. Father, I thank you that you sent your son Jesus, God in the flesh, so that we could study, that we could observe, that we could look at the way that he responded, understanding that he he dealt with the same things that we did. He knew what it meant to be tired. He knew what it meant to be at times frustrated. He knew what it meant to be lonely. He knew what it meant to feel betrayal. Father, teach us to look at him, to be followers of him. 
We thank you for the example of your son. We thank you for the gift of your son. We thank you for the sacrifice of your son on our behalf. And for all these things, we praise you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.